0: Well good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's great to be a great time to be alive and serving our Lord Jesus. Just this past week, a friend of mine made the following statement about the church. He says this, "In the midst of the fear and darkness, genuine Bible-believing churches are growing in grace as the spiritual entertainment centers shrink in retreat." God has given the true church an opportunity to stand out. The challenges are difficult but invigorating. People are searching for what the true church offers, the living Word of God and Christ Himself. He goes on to say, As affliction presses us down, as affliction weighs on us, Christ is building up His church. Amen? Christ is building His church. Well, let me pick up on that thought that people are truly searching for Christ Himself, right? I truly believe that, and I believe it is our job as the church to show them Christ, show them the Lord Jesus. Over 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus came to this earth as a, as a baby. Of all the kings born, His His birth may be, may have been the lowliest of all. There was no fanfare, yet He was born the Son of God and the Son of Man. He was the promised Redeemer, yet He was born and laid into a feeding trough for animals. He was laid there in swaddling cloths, the creator of the world among common farm animals. Just him and his parents in a strange place. It was a strange place, and it was a set of odd circumstances and seemingly insurmountable challenges which brought them to that moment in time. But there was much, much more at hand than what can be seen from a human point of view. You know, if it were you and I... If we were most people that live, we would have done things much differently. There would have been much more fanfare to the birth of our Lord. Well, today as we look forward to the Christmas this coming week, we will study and we plan to study Luke chapter 2, Luke's account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that we will see it with fresh new eyes. I hope that this account will kindle afresh the excitement over what God has accomplished in sending His Son to die. You know, I think of all that 2020 has been this year, and I hope that we end this year encouraged and excited over what God has accomplished through Christ for you and for me and for the fallen world that He entered. Now, we've already read the text and the reading, so let me just pray and I will start the sermon. Heavenly Father, just pray this morning for preaching of the Word and the reception of the Word. Father, just pray that you would be with us. Pray for the Holy Spirit. guide us and guide me in preaching this morning, that I would preach with clarity, that we would receive your word. Father, just pray that you would give us fresh insight into this incredible event, the Lord Jesus, the birth of Christ, the Messiah, the one who came to redeem us. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, on August 27, 1883, the earth let out one of the loudest noises ever known and recorded. The sound was clearly heard 2,000 miles away in New Guinea and in Western Australia. It was described as a series of loud reports re- resembling those of, mi- of military artillery in a northwesterly direction. The sound was also heard over 3,000 miles away in the Indian Ocean. At that location, it was described as a distant roar of heavy guns. Can you imagine, just for a moment, hearing a sound from, say, Miami, which is 350 miles away? It's crazy, huh? What we're talking about here, though, is like hearing a sound clearly hearing a sound from Vancouver, British Columbia, which is over 3,000 miles away. Traveling at the speed of sound, or 766 miles per hour, it takes a noise about four hours to cover that distance. Well, what what made that sound? Well, in this case, it was a volcanic eruption with a force so great that it tore apart an entire island. Amazingly, The sound had traveled 3,000 miles, or when the sound had traveled 3,000 miles, it became too faint to hear, but the vibrations from the sound continued to circle the earth. By 12 hours, St. Petersburg saw a spike in air pressure, followed by Vienna, Rome, Paris, Berlin, and Munich. By 18 hours, the, the sound, or the pulse, had reached New York and D.C. Amazingly, this is the point. Amazingly, for as many as five days after the explosion, weather stations in 50 cities around the globe observed a spike in pressure recurring every 34 hours, roughly the time it takes for sound to travel around the entire planet. So this this pulse traveled around the entire planet for five days. The captain of a British ship, which was 40 miles away when Krakatoa erupted, wrote this. He said this, So violent are the explosions that the eardrums of over half my crew have been shattered. He says this, My last thoughts are with my my dear wife. I am convinced that the day of judgment has come. Well, as we know, judgment day had not come yet. This calls to mind another catastrophic event in history. Undoubtedly, Adam had passed along to his wife Eve that God had told him not to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good, of good and evil. But there she stood, listening to the serpent, her mind abuzz. Could God really be trusted? What was he withholding from them? The Bible gives us very little information regarding the moment she ate, it simply says. Very simply says she took, and she ate, and she gave to her husband with her, and he ate also. The physical sound of their bites of eating the fruit was nowhere near as large as that volcano. The actual sound was was actually very insignificant, but it still reverberates around the world to this day, does it not? Amid the fallout from that dreadful event, God pronounced curses upon the, the serpent and upon childbearing and upon the ground. And Yet as He cursed the serpent, He made a promise. He made a promise. The promise of a seed who would crush the head of the serpent. The woman's seed. In the middle of that disaster that has reverberated around the world to this day, God gave a message of hope that He would send a Redeemer to save mankind. And in the aftermath of this greatest catastrophe to befall mankind, God promised an even greater event, that the seed of the woman would come. This event would explode on the scene and would ring through, or will ring through, eternity. He promised to send a Redeemer, our blessed hope. But the question was from that point forward, who was He? When would he arrive and in what way would he come well these were all unanswered questions adam and eve didn't know the answer to these questions nor did the satan of the did the serpent of old satan himself no one knew the answer to those questions only god knew the intricacies of his plan and only god would carry out every detail of that plan and just like that sound wave which traveled around the world with such consistency every 34 hours. God's plan has never missed a beat. God's plan is right on time. Every event of history has occurred just as God planned it to do so. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. We're going to see the coming of the Messiah. We're going to see Christ the Lord being born in Bethlehem. And in this passage, Luke records four miraculous and sovereignly planned details of the events leading up to the birth of the Messiah, to the birth of Jesus, our Lord. First, we're going to see the sovereign plan. Then we're going to see the strenuous pilgrimage. Thirdly, we're going to see the selected place. And fourth, the solemn presentation. Let's look at the First of these miraculous and sovereign details. First, let's look at the sovereign plan. Now, before we dive into this passage, I want to give you a little background of the gospel, of this gospel and its author, Luke. The gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the, the same person. Together with Acts, it forms, God, the Gospel of Luke forms a two volume work written around the same time. So you can actually read from Luke chapter 1 all the way through to the end of Acts, and you're reading basically the same work. They were both addressed to the same man. His name was Theophilus. The author, Luke, was a doctor, a Gentile, and a close companion of the Apostle Paul. He probably learned from the Apostle Paul. He did a lot of research, as we can see, in, in Luke chapter 1, and he probably learned a lot of the things that he learned from uh, the, the great apostle. Luke wrote these books to give us a sweeping and, in many ways, a meticulous history of Christianity, from the birth of Christ to Paul's imprisonment under house arrest in Rome. According to Luke in 1.3, he meticulously investigated the events surrounding the birth and life of Jesus. He also closely examined his death and, in the book of Acts, the subsequent ministry of the the apostles, including Paul. As such, Luke describes the events of Christ's birth. Now, considering this, it's amazing that as we read the account of Christ's birth, the account itself is really pretty sparse and just factual. He doesn't give us any elaborate details. Now, we are left to assume that this is because of the simplicity of the event. You see, Luke simply records the historical circumstances of Jesus' birth with no fanfare. Now, what we have to understand is, is that this is God's, God is working these things out perfectly. And as we dig deeper into what Luke is saying, we see the amazing... Aspects of the birth of Christ. The birth itself is unfathomably consequential. Words can't describe how enormous it was for the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, God Himself, to be born in Bethlehem. Yet, Luke describes the events leading to His birth in 147 English words the birth announcement of the King of kings and the Lord of lords in its absolute simplicity. I would argue that Luke's economy of language actually leads us to contemplate the enormity of the events. But it also helps us recognize the modesty of our Lord. This account should bring to mind the humility of the Incarnation. You see, according to the Apostle Paul, our Lord emptied Himself, taking on the form of a a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in in appearance as a man. Shockingly, shockingly, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In any case, I believe that Luke is purposeful in how he gives the account of this event so let's dive in look at your text in luke chapter 2 verse 1 it says now in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth Let's stop right there a few years ago i went on a study tour of israel i was amazed that when i was there at the history of the region, as you might imagine, I was blown away at how the geography of Israel and the history of the Bible, or the history of Israel, brought the Bible to life for me. I was struck by how the Bible was set in the real world. Let me say it another way a world which I am familiar with. There's nothing, there's nothing different about Israel than what I have seen in this world. There's trees, there's mountains. There's geography. We still, the the things that you and I are familiar with. Well, in this case, what we have is a census being taken. We are familiar with those, right? Every ten years in the United States, we are counted. Well, in this text, the Caesar Augustus is taking a census of the inhabited earth, the Roman Empire. Now, this was not simply a one-time census. His decree established that the census was to occur every 14 years. This census would set in motion the event that would change everything, though. Just remember that God uses every event for His purposes and His plans. We shouldn't live as if God is not using the current events of history, the things that we see in the news, for His glory. Now, Caesar Augustus was a cunning man. He was a brilliant organizer and administrator. Therefore, he ordered this census mostly... For the purpose of conscription, he was counting the number of fighting men for the purpose of drafting them for military service. Now, here's here's what's amazing Palestine, the area around Israel, had previously been excluded from the census because Jews were not required to serve in the Roman army. Again, remember the timing of this particular census. It is part of God's sovereign plan to bring about the birth of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, Augustus, we have to give it to him. He was brilliant. So he began to tally people for tax purposes. He needed, in other words, he needed to fill the coffers. And in doing so, he ordered each nation to be numbered by family and tribe. We should note that Jews... The Jews came to hate the census because they came to hate and despise the Roman tax. Now, Caesar Augustus was arguably the most important figure in Roman history. During his 44-year reign, he was successful in consolidating power in Rome. He was born Caius Octavius. He was the grandnephew and the adopted son and heir to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, who had died in 44 B.C., but after his death, it took 13 years for Octavius to dispatch his rivals and ascend to undisputed power in Rome. So two years after that, so in 31 B.C., he came to full power, and in 29 B.C., the Roman Senate honored him with the title of Augustus. Now, ironically, this title meant exalted one. It has the idea of one who is worthy of being worshipped. It has an echo of the divine under his rule, the Roman Empire expanded and prospered, therefore he came to be revered by many. He ushered his, his rule was, was successful in that he in a, ushered in a period of peace between the different nationalities which existed in the Roman Empire. It's called the pax pax Romana Romana now while Caesar Augustus was one of the main players in view in this text. There was another bit player in view. Look at verse 2. This was the first census taken by Quirinius, the governor of, who was governor of, while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Luke is meticulous in his investigation. This information should help us fix the time of the census, but finding the precise date is actually problematic. You see, this man was known to have governed, governed by history to have governed Syria between AD 6 and 9. This, is, well, this was well attested, and this, the census... There's, actually, let me say this another way. There was a well-attested census administered by this man, which occurred in AD 6. But that would actually be too late because it occurred a decade after the death of King Herod the Great. He was the king, As you, if you study scripture, you'll find that he was the king at the time of Jesus' birth. The, his governorship then, and the census during his governorship that history records was too late. But, but history has shown that Quirinius served as governor of Syria on two different occasions. Further, an early worldwide census was ordered into Egypt in 8 B.C. Now, what we have to remember is things didn't move so fast in the ancient world. So Caesar Augustus ordered the census in 8 B.C., but it wasn't carried out for another two to four years. This puts the date of the census, the census that Luke is talking about, and Christ's birth between 6 and 4 B.C. Now. We can't fasten a precise date of these events. But we know that it happened precisely as God planned. Now, we must not miss this. You see, the birth of Christ was always according to God's sovereign plan. The timing and circumstances of the event were always completely within His sovereign control. Just think of Caesar Augustus. He was the perfect man to have ordered this census for his own selfish purposes. Also think of this man Quirinius. His accomplishments in history show that he was the man to carry out this difficult census in Palestine. In a moment, we're going to see how the timing of these events perfectly lined up to bring to pass the prophecies of the Old Testament. Any, any, any Study serious study of Scripture bears out the truth that the hand of God the Father was upon all the events of Jesus' life. All of our Lord's life went according to God's plan up to the de- His death on the cross and His resurrection on the third day. Let's listen to Acts 2.23. Peter says that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was delivered over by the the plan of God. God planned these things. You see, Jesus was never a victim. Everything that He did in His life, his His incarnation in its entirety was always the perfect reflection of the Father's timing. Nothing, beloved, nothing in His life was left to happenstance or chance. Now let's look at another miraculous detail. Look at your text in verse 3. It says, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. Now, As I mentioned earlier, this census, the purpose of this census was twofold. It was for the draft or conscription, the counting of fighting men to feed the war machine, and it was also for taxes to build the empire and fill the coffers, thus enriching Rome and Caesar Augustus himself. It seemed to be the Roman custom of taxation that everyone returned to their ancestral home for the people to be counted, therefore... Everyone returned to his, to his own city. Now, it's important for us to understand that there was simply no way to file an extension. Joseph was expected to be counted in Judea in the city of David. Now, from Joseph and Mary's point of view, this was uh, the most inconvenient and dangerous time imaginable. Can you imagine from Mary's perspective? She is very much pregnant. Yet she travels this strenuous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, a 70-mile journey through mountainous terrain on the verge of delivery. You know, I was thinking about this. Do you want to talk about a Proverbs 31 woman, right? She was certainly willing to go afar for the needs of her family, right? From a human perspective, Joseph and Mary... For them to do this is simply amazing, but it's amazing that they did this simply to satisfy the taxation decree of a pagan king. An evil man bent on fulfilling his own plans and enriching himself. How's that for sovereignty and action? You see, Caesar Augustus was hailed as the savior of the world. He was even identified as, as God. As a son of God and as a savior, his name was associated with peace, hope, and good news. But his actions, his actions in ordering this census to be accomplished in Palestine at this time, brought forth the true savior of the world, the true son of God, the true savior who has brought peace and hope to the world, the true savior who is the good news. (coughs) <coughs> now, there's something else we should notice about verse 4. And we don't have time to completely unpack this, but Jesus, according to verse 4, Joseph, that is, Joseph was of the, of the house and family of David. Now, Jesus was the physical heir of David through Mary and not through Joseph. Luke Luke proves this with his genealogy recorded in chapter 3. As such, he was the legal heir through Joseph, as shown by Matthew in his gospel. Therefore, what we want to see is is that, or what we need to understand is, is that God's sovereign choice of these two, Joseph and Mary, perfectly fulfills 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, that a son of David would be on the throne forever. You see, he physically descended from David through Mary, but he was the rightful heir to David's throne through Joseph, his legal father. Again, what we need to understand is is that God perfectly orchestrated every detail to bring about all these things, including this momentous and incredibly difficult journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5, it says, In order to register with Mary, along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. As we have said, Luke doesn't miss one detail in his description of the events. Notice that he says that Mary traveled with David to Bethlehem. The question is, why would Mary travel on such a difficult journey at that time? Being very, very pregnant, almost ready to have her child. Now, we can't be for certain the exact reason from a human perspective why Mary went. Obviously, we know that they were led by God's sovereign hand. It could be that Mary had to go because she had to be registered in Bethlehem as well, although Luke doesn't give that information. It may be that Joseph and Mary were aware that this birth would fulfill Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem. But I would argue that the human answer may lie in the situation in which Mary and Joseph found themselves. According to Matthew 1.18, Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Now, some folks see this as the same as our modern engagement period, but the betrothal was much more binding than an engagement. Actually, the betrothed, betrothed couple were regarded legally as husband and wife, even though the marriage had not been consummated. Now, that's important because that made Joseph Jesus' legal father. So, Joseph and Mary were as good as married when these events occurred. Now, it was during that period, the betrothal period, that Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, on his part, was going to put her away secretly because he didn't want shame to come to her. But, when he considered doing this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, and he told Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as, as his wife. Not to be afraid, not to be afraid to go forward with marrying, or, or consummating his marriage. Because the child was of the Holy Spirit. So, Joseph did it as he told, was told, and he took Mary as his wife. Now, Here's what I want you to think through. This thing would have been known by the townsfolk, right? I mean, that's that's actually the purpose of the betrothal, is is that period of time for uh, them to be observed. So I believe that Joseph may have taken Mary with him to escape the shame of this advanced pregnancy. He took her with him to protect her. The shame of the pregnancy in the eyes of the hometown folk. Just think about this. There they are in Nazareth. They know the baby's arrival is close. We know that Joseph was a just man and and probably knew that Jesus would be born when he was away. So instead of bringing that shame upon his wife, he took her to protect her. Well, we can't know for sure, right? But whatever the reason, Mary went to Bethlehem with Joseph. And it was according to God's sovereign hand that she did so. She took this difficult journey and she did so in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which called for Bethlehem to be the selected birthplace of the Messiah. This brings us to the third third miraculous detail of the Messiah's birth. We've seen the first, the sovereign plan. We've seen the second, the strenuous pilgrimage. Let's look at the third, the selected place. Look at your text in verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Luke simply conveys that Mary came to full term, and she gave birth to Jesus while they were in Bethlehem. Now, we have highlighted all over and over in, in this sermon God's sovereignty, And we have alluded to Old Testament prophecy, but I want to show you this. Turn to Micah 5.2. Now as you turn there, I want you to know, and I want you to, to just let it sink in, that Micah is writing this prophecy 700 plus years before the birth of Christ. Look at your text, Micah 5.2. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Verse 3, Therefore he will give them up until the time when she, is, she who is in labor has born a child, then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. Three crucial details. Three crucial details given in this prophecy of the coming Messiah. First, the Christ was be, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a small backwater town. It was completely insignificant compared to the places, to other places which the Messiah could have been born in Judah. We might refer to Bethlehem as a wide spot in the road, a one-horse town, or maybe a place where they roll up the sidewalks at night. In any case, it's a nothing place. Now, here's what's amazing to me, and I hope it, it is to you. Bethlehem was only about six miles from Jerusalem. Six miles. Think about how close that is. From a, from a human perspective, Jerusalem which would have been a much more likely choice for the birthplace of the coming king, right? I mean, that's where the temple is at. Yet, this was not God's sovereign choice. And I believe the fact that Jerusalem was so close adds an interesting twist to the story. Now back to, and we'll get to that in a moment, but back to Micah's prophecy. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now obviously this presented a barrier to fulfillment because Jesus, by, by Jesus himself, because Joseph and Mary lived physically lived in Nazareth. But as we've already seen how God... But we've already seen how God overcame this obstacle. And He used a man, the man Caesar, Caesar Augustus to do so. Now look back at Micah 5.2. In Micah 5.2 He says, from, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. So the second thing that we find in Micah is that the Messiah was to be a ruler. He was to be a king. But He was not to be any ordinary king. He was to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, according to this prophecy in Micah 5.2, it was clear that the Messiah would not be an ordinary human. He was to be divine. His goings forth, look back at Micah 5.2, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So, according to Micah, this uh, this was an eternal person. Therefore, He had to be God in the flesh. You see, our redemption demanded the Messiah be God in the flesh. Micah confirms that the Messiah was to be divine. He is the Eternal One. This prophecy points to another prophecy by uh, by Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Just listen. It says, For a child, this is Isaiah 9, 6, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We see here, we see here some of the same themes, right? We see the, the theme of, of the throne of David, the, the theme of this, this child being born and given to us, and Him being a ruler, having a kingdom, a kingdom of peace. We also see at the end the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, that it's according to God's sovereign plan that Christ came, and it's according to His sovereign plan, and every detail of it has been sovereignly put together by our Lord. How amazing is it that God would send His Son to die for our sins? Jesus is the Son of God, our wonderful Counselor, our mighty God. He is our Prince of Peace. Let us look at the final detail, the final detail of Jesus' birth according to Luke. Luke 2.7, let's look at the solemn presentation. The solemn presentation, look at your text back in Luke. If you're not there, turn back to Luke 2.7. Luke simply says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the in the inn. First, I want you to notice that this is Mary's firstborn, firstborn son. You see, she gave birth to other children after Jesus. He was her firstborn son by the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin when she conceived him. According to Scripture, Joseph and Mary did not consummate that marriage, their marriage, until after Jesus' birth. Now look at your text in verse 7 again. wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. I think at this point, before we discuss the details, it bears mentioning that, that each Gospel writer has a theme of their, own, of their writing. Matthew presents Jesus as the true King of Israel. Mark presents Jesus as the servant. John presents Jesus as the Son of God. Luke, the gospel that we're in now, presents Jesus as the Son of Man. Now, we've already seen that Luke gives sparse details of our Lord's birth. Now, I would venture to say this should be striking to us. They should be striking because of where the birth occurred. Not only was Jesus born in this... Little town of Bethlehem, this wide spot on the road. But, but according to the text, he was laid in a manger immediately after his birth. Now, we need to understand that a manger was a feeding trough for animals. The question is, why did Jesus why did Mary lay Jesus down in a manger? Well, the simple answer is, there was no alternative. You see, they had traveled to Bethlehem, which was not a big place. And most likely, others probably traveled there as well because of the census. Now, like I said, every detail of this is sovereignly ordered. So the, the town was probably filled beyond its capacity. There were probably, I mean, as you know, there probably weren't too many Holiday Inns and Hiltons around. You see, the text says there were no room at the inn. Now, this could have been an actual inn with a stable. Now, an inn could have been two stories or one story. It most likely, though, either way, most likely had a stable where Joseph and Mary found themselves at the time of Jesus' birth because there was no room in the the main place to stay. There was no room for them at the typical place for travelers. So, they camped out. They pitched a tent, so to speak. They camped out specifically where the other travelers kept their animals. Therefore, Jesus was potentially born outside in the elements among the animals. Not that there wasn't a cover, but the point is, is He they, He was not born inside in the end. The point is, is that He was born in the muck and the stink and the filth of this world. Now, we can't know this for sure' Just reading a little bit between the lines but Luke's theme is presenting Jesus as the Son of man, Jesus as the son of Adam, more specifically. His genealogy even goes through the genealogy later in chapter three or chapter two goes through and, and presents Jesus as the son of Adam. so connecting Jesus from from through David, through Abraham, back to Adam. So presents him as the son of man. Now, Jesus being born among the animals points back to Adam's creation among the animals in day six of creation. You get the point. You have the first Adam. Now we have the second Adam. The true Adam. Jesus was born to rule over the earth just as Adam was commanded to do. Now, I want you to notice one other thing here. Jesus' birth was a lonely occasion, right? Notice in verse 7, notice that Mary gave birth and she wrapped him in cloths. Now, most of the time, if you think about verse even today, we have attendants, right? Nurses, people around. Who normally wraps the baby and cleans the baby? The nurses, the attendants. Who's missing here? She has no attendants. It's just her and Joseph. I- imagine for a moment the solitary nature of this. It almost brings you to tears to think that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords came and only her, His mother and father were present. That is, of this world. Mary gave birth, and she wrapped him, and she laid him in the manger. Beloved, it, is, it should be beyond your comprehension that the Son of God would be born alone with his mother and father. Yet, that is exactly what happened. J.I. Packer says this, before I get to the quote, I just want to reiterate. If you and I were putting this story together, right, if we were telling, if we just were making this up and we were going to make up the story of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords coming into the world, it would not look like this. It would not be Joseph and Mary there alone, her laying the baby in the manger. It wouldn't, look, it, it wouldn't be a manger for one thing. It wouldn't be in Bethlehem for another. It wouldn't be that way, right? Jay Packer says this, The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation, end quote. Looking at this account, do you know who's conspicuously absent? Not there? We'll turn to Matthew 2 as we turn the corner here. Matthew chapter 2. says, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet Micah. Micah. And they basically quote, they paraphrase Micah in their quote. So when Herod asked the chief priests and the scribes about where the Messiah was to be born, they quoted Micah 5. They knew of the prophecies of the coming Messiah, yet they did not bother to go to Bethlehem to welcome Him. You see, they were conspicuously absent at Jesus' birth. Jesus had come to His own, but His own did not receive Him. They completely rejected Him. Later in Jesus' ministry, they even attributed His works to being the work of Satan. You know why? Because He didn't come with all the fanfare that they expected. They didn't expect the simplicity of the birth of the Messiah. They were so blinded. And their blindness ultimately led to hatred for Him that ultimately sent Him to the cross. But beloved, every detail... From Caesar Augustus to Quirinius, to the fact that he was that Joseph and Mary had to travel to Bethlehem, and oh by the way, the, tra- the Nazareth is north of Jerusalem, and they probably went. They had to go right by Jerusalem to go into Bethlehem. I mean, isn't that isn't that amazing that they had that that they actually had to travel? To Bethlehem, and they could have, they were right there with, I mean, she could have had the baby right there in Jerusalem. I mean, except for God's sovereign timing, that her days were completed when they arrived in Bethlehem. Beloved, the leaders of Israel rejected Christ. But I beg you to behold him. I beg you not to reject him. Many come to church, many of you even come to church every week, but maybe have not received Christ. Many of you make Christmas into this elaborate celebration with Santa and Christmas lights and many gifts for your children. You see, the human heart wants to make this elaborate, right? But That's not the heart of Christmas as seen through the birth of Christ. People try to elaborate on Christmas, but in the words of Corey Tinboom, she says, Who can add to Christmas? The perfect motive is that God so loved the world. The perfect gift it is that He gave His only Son. The only requirement is to believe in Him. And the reward of faith is that you have everlasting life. End quote. Beloved, that is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is truly amazing when we consider that God came down to us. He was truly God with us. He humbled Himself to be with us, to redeem, him, redeem us. John Piper says, the only people... Who can truly magnify the Lord are people who acknowledge their lowly estate. And he says this. So they acknowledge their own lowly estate. And they're overwhelmed by the condensation, condescension. That is, the condescension of the magnificent God. End quote. Beloved, in the next few days we have, you have an opportunity to consider the true meaning of Christmas. Christmas. Don't miss a chance to contemplate the Creator of the universe, born in a manger, condescended to His creation to save us. Don't miss contemplating the cross, that He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Don't forget to think through and meditate on the resurrection. And that the very same baby that was born in a manger is now exalted to the right hand of the Father. And is now seated in the heavenlies. And that if you are in Christ, if you believe the story of Christmas... The truth of Christmas, I shouldn't even say a story. The truth of Christmas, that you are raised up and seated with Him in the heavenlies even today. Let me finish with a quote from John MacArthur. If we could condense all the truths of Christmas into only three words, these would be the words, God with us. We tend to focus our attention at Christmas on the infancy of Christ. The greater truth of the holiday is His deity. More astonishing than a baby in the manger is the truth that this promised baby is the omnipotent creator of the heavens and the earth. End quote. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning as we think and we pray look forward to celebrating Christmas this week with our families and with those we love. Lord, may we never forget the meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas. That a holy God condescended to be with us. God with us. And that that baby in the manger was none other than the omnipotent creator of the universe who was born to die, born to redeem us, and is now sitting at at the right hand of the Father, at your right hand, ruling on high, having fulfilled everything. It is the Lord Jesus whom we serve. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.